Well, if you have a Bible this morning, I would ask that you open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're in chapter 5 after going through chapter 4 uh, last week. So if you have a Bible, you could open there. And if you do not have a Bible with you this morning, uh, there should be screens around if you can't see this main screen. Uh, and the words will be up here for you to follow along as I read this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the beginning in verse 1, and we'll be going all the way to verse 13. God's word says this, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and of evil, but of, with the new unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexual, sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters, since you would need to go out of this world. But I am now writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? It is, not, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. That is God's word in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Please remain standing as we continue to worship together in song. That God was leading us, instead of what we had lined up, to do a study of the 1 Corinthians. Then when we met with Aaron and with Curran, all the preaching team, to discuss the sermon series, we knew this was going to be a very important series. I've been at Good News for 35 years, I guess, and without when we've ever preached through the book of 1 Corinthians. We believe that God will use it to instruct and to challenge our community, and I believe that it has doing that. <clears throat> Whenever you plan a series like this in advance, you can only pray that God we use his word, and that will be timely, and trust that God works through it. And I really believe that he has done that. <clears throat> About a month ago, I received a call from my brother James. James said, Ralph, I just got a call from Charles. That's another brother. And he was really fast. He said, uh... Robbie's alive for now, but pray for her. No details. We found out later <clears throat> Robbie had gone into cardiac arrest three times. They had traveled over two hours from my home area in Alabama to Mobile. And once she got into the emergency room, 
she had the cardiac arrest. My brother Charles watched through a window as they were working on his wife as the doctors applied shock treatments with electricity through using paddles. It was extremely hard for him to observe as his wife was continually shocked, jolts of electricity hitting her body applied to her chest area. It's been four weeks. My sister-in-law, Robbie's chest, still is in pain, still hurts. But she's alive. She's alive. And it was traumatic for my brother to see his wife go through that, and yet he is thankful because she's alive. Because he is able to live life alongside her. Church discipline, in a sense, is a shock treatment designed to provoke those who are rebellious to turn to the Lord. It's commanded in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which we read earlier today. The purpose is to protect the purity of the church and to bring the offender to repentance to restoration. And just as my sister-in-law's care was a life-death issue, so is church discipline for both the church and the offender. As we continue our study in 1 Corinthians, again, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Last week, Kerwin preached from chapter 4. He dealt with the issues of the pride that is a root of the division there in the church in Corinth. And after sarcastically confronting their pride, Paul warns them and says, I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. So I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness. See, Paul writes to a church that's in an emergency room. He's diagnosed a problem cancer, spiritual cancer. Sin is like cancer that will destroy the body of Christ if not dealt with. He urges the church at Corinth to remove the cancer, to remove that member who's involved in sexual immorality. The church will either stand together or fall based on this action. Chapter 5 is not so much about the immorality of this person, although it's very much a a, a, a big subject but it's about the pride and the inaction on the part of the congregation in the first five verses of chapter 5 Paul calls for judgment let's read those verses together again it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Paul raises two concerns in these opening verses. First, a man has his father's wife. Not his mother, but probably his stepmother. Incest. Though it's not even tolerated among the pagans. And more important, 
Paul was concerned that the church had failed to take sin seriously. Paul announces that judgment on the man who has committed incest. In verse 2, we'll see the first of several times that Paul instructs the church to remove this man from fellowship. Most of us are familiar, I think, with the admonition that we're not to judge one another. We often hear people say, you shouldn't be judging. But few understand the context of that passage. Jesus actually says that we are to judge. But first, we must judge our own selves. Before we remove that speck in our brother's eye, we're to remove the stick out of our eye. In other words, the Lord doesn't want us to judge hypocritically. That phrase is reported, actually reported, that there's this immorality going on, makes it very clear that the sin was well known. It wasn't a secret. And Paul was astonished at the church, their behavior. They were letting a man who was a member of the church, committing incest, to remain a member of the church. Un- unwilling to check that discipline. Today, when church discipline does not happen, usually it's because we're, quote-unquote, too humble. We ask the question, who are we to point the finger? Or, who am I to judge? Or, who are we to cast that first stone? And then today, if a church does follow through with church discipline, it's often suggested that it was done on a moralistic pride. It's kind of a holier-than-thou type of thing. And arrogance is said to be the reason for the discipline. In verses 3 through 5, Paul writes, You must call a meeting of the church, and I'll be present with you in spirit. And so with the power of our Lord Jesus. And then you must throw this man out and hand him over to Satan so that his nature, or his sinful nature, will be destroyed. And he himself will be saved on the day the Lord returns. He says you must call a meeting. Church discipline is done by the congregation, not by the elders. It's done by the congregation. And it's in the power of the Lord that discipline is carried out. When we hear church discipline, we may think it sounds so severe and maybe a little old-fashioned. Um, maybe right now you're thinking of Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter. Or maybe you're thinking that church discipline went out with child's thankings in favor of the more understanding and affirmative approach toward problems and problem people. But the church that fails to lovingly confront and correct its members is not being gracious or not being loving. Such a church is really hindering the work of the Lord and the advancement of his kingdom. I was disciplined as a child by my parents. Chris and I have disciplined our own sons 
we used a variety of different things, different forms at different age levels. They never had to go out like I did. My dad used to say, son, go out and get a peach tree limb. Now, Zach and Jerry had never gone through that. And in and, 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 and all this, we spanked very sparingly. Now, if you've asked Jared, Jared would say that we weren't sparing. Spanking occurred up to age five or six with our kids. But again, if you talk to Jared, he would say it went much further. Of course, in the midst of these occasional spankings, there were timeouts and loss of privileges. And I must confess that as a father, spanking discipline was an unpleasant experience. I, I remember as a child growing up and the very few times I got spankings, my dad would say, it hurts me more than it does you, son. And I said, yeah, dad. Yeah. Jared again agrees with that sentiment when I've told him that. But there's one thing, though, one thing that moved me to spank my sons, Zach and Jared, is my deep love. My deep love for my sons demanded that I not allow any inappropriate behavior to go unchecked. My love for my sons forced me to act so that Zachary and Jared would hopefully grow up to love the Lord, to live lives of honor. I didn't say they'd be perfect, but I wanted to grow up and love the Lord. So when we think of church discipline, what does it mean to remove someone as they're being requested to do here? Well, Jesus says that we're to treat these people is Gentile, or the tax collector. If you remember, Gentiles were considered outsiders in regard to God's blessings. They weren't allowed beyond that out-of-court area. They couldn't go in. And it was very severe. If they went into the sanctuary, they were killed. The tax collectors were considered traitors to the Jewish community because they collected taxes for Rome. More often than not, they kind of padded their pockets by putting, taking more than they should, and so they were considered outcast. And Jesus was instructing the church to exclude the repentant person, as was the custom with Gentiles and tax collectors. It's, it's cutting a person off from membership, from that worship time, from fellowship, from communion, from that body life. We see later on in chapter 5 here, verses 9 through 11, we're told that you must not associate with this man. Do not even eat with such people. It's treating him as a non-believer because he's not walking with the Lord. Not only does he lose the positive aspects of being a part of the body of Christ, he's also placed in a dangerous position of being exposed to Satan's attacks. And when a church delivers someone over to Satan, it's simply giving the unrepentant person what he's chosen to remain in sin. And it's to be in bondage 
of Satan. And discipline confirms a choice that the unrepentant person has already made. And even though discipline seems so severe, it's to be done in love. It should communicate, we love you, but we find your present conduct unacceptable to God and to the congregation. And our law for you demands that we take this step, which is painful. And we hope it leads to repentance. If you could just go back to my sons, to Zach and Jared, I, I hate to spank them. And it hurt me. But I did it because I wanted them to live in a right way. Well, verse 5 says, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The primary meaning of, of the destruction of the flesh here is the destruction of that self-sufficient, self-directed, selfish, carnal attitude of the unrepentant sinner. This phrase doesn't necessarily mean refer to death, although God has various ways of drawing us to himself. And it could, in the long run, end in physical death, but the primary thing is, is that carnal uh, selfishness that God wants to remove. And the goal of this all is his repentance. As you think about this man, and think about this church more so, how how does a church get to the point where they have such a blatant sin in the church and not only do they allow it, but they boast. They boast. It's, I think, a warning for us as we live our lives that we don't let sin slide by. Well, after instructing the church to remove this man, Paul gives the reason for discipline. A little sin will ruin the whole church. Verses 6 through 8, I'm reading from here in from the New Living Translation. You're boasting about this is terrible. Don't you realize that this sin is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of this old yeast by removing this wicked person from among you. And then you will be like a fresh batch made without yeast, which is what you really are. If you can go back and remember back to, to, to Israel and to the first Passover and to the Exodus, several times the Israelites were said to remove every trace, every trace of yeast or leaven from their homes. Yeast or leaven represents sin. And the dough represents the church. If given an opportunity, sin will permeate the whole church just as yeast permeates the whole loaf of bread. Just like one tiny cell of, of a cancer cell can remain after going through treatment and come back. Paul calls for purity in the church. Get rid of sin by removing this wicked person. Paul's point is clear. Sin always spreads and contaminates if left alone. Just like poison can. 
and soon the moral fabric of the church will suffer. Scripture says over and over in different ways about sin and how it grows. It says a root of bitterness can spring up and defile many. A foolish talk leads to more godless behavior and spreads like gangrene. When we're broken over sin, when we see how fast it moves and how it affects the body, we remove an unrepentant person because we want the church to be holy. The church at Corinth was proud, arrogant, boastful, immoral. And this unchecked pride blinded them. It allowed the cancer to grow. I can't help but think that about this whole pride thing. When one goes to the hospital and finds out that he or she has cancer, anything else that one brags about doesn't matter. If you find out that you got cancer, you, you don't brag about your bank account anymore. You don't brag about the neighborhood where you live. You don't brag about the car you drive. You don't brag about your looks and hope none of us do that. Period. Because everything else is irrelevant. If you've got cancer, there's only one issue in your mind. Get this cancer out of my body. You know what's true for an individual is true for a church. If someone in our church is in sin, it doesn't matter how much money they make, where they live, or what they drive. The only thing relevant is that they have spiritual cancer and must be removed from the church. Frankie Torres, as was mentioned earlier, just happened to look out Tuesday and saw flames coming out of the building. Immediately he called 9-11, The fire department here was immediately in. They got rid of all the flames. Our staff was watching as they were working. And then I saw them with these hooks and things. And they started tearing down that nice tin ceiling that we have. But you see, they had to do that because embers, fire, could be in the ceiling. The fire department investigators began a that was accidental, coming from a grinding of a steel beam that day. The fire department said that if it had not been contained quickly, that it would, the whole church would have gone up in flames quickly. In the same way, we as a church must move quickly to remove sin. It's like that expression... One bad apple destroys the whole barrel. Or maybe if you take a loaf of bread. And, and, and maybe I'm wrong. Uh, one kind of running joke in this staff um, office when we eat is I'm pretty particular about food and food that's been left lying around for a while. And if the date is bad, I don't eat it. They laugh at me. I think when we look at a loaf of bread and there's mold on it, I hope you guys don't just 
take that mold out and eat the rest of the bread? Because you know why? Sometimes you don't see the mold. Then we get sick. I know. I know that sometimes I might let go of food a little too early, but I'd rather let go a little quicker than later because I don't want to get something bad. Well, after calling for judgment, that removal of this man, Paul gives a reason. Sin always spreads. It always contaminates everything all around it. Finally, in verses 9 through 13, Paul clarifies his command to to judge the church and not the non-believer. Paul had written to the Corinthians early on, and and valiantly they misunderstood what he said. He said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. Since you would need to go out of the world. Paul is saying, don't worry about judging the world. That's God's job. When sinners sin, that's just who they are. As one person said, that's the part of a sinner's job description. It's none of our business to judge non-believers. He clarifies that this command is related only to Christians. He says, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister. If he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or idolatry or reviler or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Paul is saying, it's sin in the church that you need to be concerned with. Focus on the church. Be concerned about the church in the U.S. instead of the political thinking. The word associate, don't even associate, means don't keep intimate company with. Paul goes on and says, don't even, don't even eat with someone who is disciplined. No exceptions. Even if the unrepentant person is a close friend or family member, he's to lose contact with fellow believers in order to not corrupt him not corrupt them in their in his wickedness the pain hopefully will drive them to repentance I've been here for 35 years or so and over the last all these years I, I think that good news has disciplined probably six or seven people and there are people today that I have been very close to whom I often ate with. But because of their sin and their rejection of the Lord, because of their rebellion, I can no longer freely associate with them, as shown in this passage. People often ask, well, what sins are required church discipline? Since we all sin every day, well, first of all, we're not to discipline someone for areas that there's no biblical command. Like drinking alcoholic drinks isn't grounds for discipline. But a pattern of drunkenness certainly is. Watching movies is not ground for discipline. 
but watching pornographic ones are or is. You say, well, why should there be any distinctions made among the sins? Coveting doesn't demand rebuke unless it expresses itself in extortion or embezzlement or theft. In the same way, most believers struggle in some sense with lust. And believers who are fighting against lust are not to be disciplined. But when lust expresses itself in sexual immorality and the offender does not repent of his sin, then discipline is necessary. And all believers struggle with the tongue and with speech. As a matter of fact, James, which we just went through not long ago, says that we all stumble in many ways with our tongue. Corrective discipline is necessary when one engages in slander and gossip, refuses to apologize and to repent. And there can be disagreements in the church. But when it comes to being divisive, the church must act. Titus 3.10 says that as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him. As we think about church discipline, there are four basic categories of sins for which church discipline may occur. First is Christian love. When Christian love is violated, and that's like the unresolved relational issues, gossip, slander, anger, abusive speech. Second is when Christian law is violated, and that's when someone lives scandalous lives. And third is Christian, when Christian unity is violated by those who cause divisiveness within the church. And fourth is when Christian truth is violated by those who teach false doctrine. Remember, this is not a one-time thing. It's not sinning once and being disciplined. It's a pattern. It's a pattern of unrepentant sin in the life of the believer. Well, finally, in verse 13, Paul writes, and he says, But what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those on the outside. Purge this evil person from among you. Paul closes off this chapter with two thoughts, two key thoughts. Again, first is we're not to judge non-believers. That's, that's God's job. Leave it to Him. We're to be concerned about the church. Sometimes our concern for the world can cover up the need to deal with the church. And second, for the fifth time in chapter 5, Paul says, get rid of this unrepentant believer. Purge the evil man from among you. As I was studying, as I was reading, preparing for, for this message, the, the seriousness of the consequences Paul commanded it was so strong because five times it says, get rid of him. Verse 2 says, put out of your fellowship this man. Verse 5, hand this man over to Satan. Verse 7, remove this wicked person from among you. In verse 9 through 11, 
you must not associate with this man. Do not even eat with such people. In verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. I think we see the importance of church discipline by the number of times that Paul instructs the congregation to remove this guy. Five times in 13 verses. It's pretty strong. As I said earlier, church discipline is difficult, it's painful, it's heartbreaking. I can think back over the years, and, and, and we as elders have literally cried with people as we begged them to repent. It's hard. What are the benefits of church discipline? As I was thinking of this, I, I thought about Ananias and Sapphira. If you remember, is the church was just getting started in Acts 5, and people were selling their property, and they were turning the money over to the, to the leaders to distribute to those in need. And Ananias and Sapphira, they sold their property. They kept back some. But they insinuated they were giving it all. Of course, we know that God took their lives. And it says that great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. See, it was good for the other believers because they saw the danger of sin. And they were afraid. It says that, and this is interesting, listen to this, no one else dared join them even though all the people had high regard for them, yet more and more believed and were brought to the Lord. It helped to purify the church, I think, because those who were either in sin or weren't interested in the gospel, I think those are the ones who stayed away. But the gospel is powerful, right? And it's attractive. And because of that, many more believed so it's good in the sense that it provides that corporate witness many believed. Well, my sister-in-law, Robbie, is alive today because she was administered this shock treatment to get her heart beating and to get the pump, uh, to pump the blood throughout her body. And as I mentioned earlier, a full month and she still hurts. Her chest is still sore. She's under the care of several doctors who desire the best for her. And her husband, Charles, deeply affected by all he saw. Very traumatic type situation. There were days, probably three or four, that Robbie didn't even, she didn't even remember what happened. Robbie's situation is still a work in process. I promise you that Charles and Robbie are so thankful for what they went through, even though it was painful, even though it was hard. In the same way, church discipline is shock treatment, designed to provoke, in a good sense, to provoke those who are rebellious to return to the Lord. And it, too, is a life-death issue for the church and for the unrepentant sinner. And that's a question for me and for you. So are we willing to go through that process that our lives might be saved? 
or rather that lives might be saved and that the church might remain healthy. These things come up. We don't want to go through this hard process. But the church requires this in order to remain strong. And if ever we discipline someone, it's not that we don't love the offender, but we should love Christ and his church and his word more than we love the offender. Arthur Bill Hall says, Helping people obey God and overcome debilitating behavior is just as loving as when a physician removes a cancerous growth and restores the body to health. One, one warning as we think about our own lives, and, and um, again, we all struggle with sin in different ways, but it's easy to call our sins by mild but untrue names. I think of a guy who acknowledged that he had been involved in sexual immorality. But as he was going through counseling, he kept using the word, my mistakes. Mistakes. You see, and he was confronted by this counselor and said, that wasn't a mistake, that was sin. And that's sometimes how we are. We, we want to make what we've done into a milder, more acceptable type thing. We can't call cancer arthritis and hope that it goes away. We must remember that sin is like cancer and it spreads like wildfire and destroys. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Oh, Father, this is such a hard, hard topic. All of these have been hard. Father, I remember so clearly when first Carrie and I and then Kerwin and Aaron talked through this. Just the importance of making your word the standard for our lives. Father, may we not call our sin anything but sin. May we love you and your church more than anyone or anything else. We ask, Father, that as necessary, Father, we would confess our sins. And, Father, if we're caught up in a pattern, that we would go to someone and ask them to hold us accountable. Again, thank you, Father, for your grace. Father, for your mercy. We thank you, Father, we don't have to get to this point. We can come to you. We can go to our brothers and sisters in Christ and get help. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.